The Veterans Affairs Department has brought some teleworking employees back to the office and expects more to return by May. Still, management envisions a mixed workplace, at least for the eligible staff, and that means VA telework is here to stay, with workplace flexibility and higher pay as ways to recruit and retain people. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. And Jory, they've brought back people already. Who's already back and who are they about to bring back? The VA has already brought back its non-bargaining unit employees. That happened last week, and the agency expects to bring its bargaining unit employees back to the office by May. Some context here, we're only really talking about a portion of the VA's workforce going back into the office. The VA recently said that about 80% of its employees were frontline workers since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they were providing health care to patients, as well as administering services on behalf of its uh, national cemeteries. So basically, the people coming back, we can surmise, are mostly at the Veterans Benefits Administration, where it's not dealing with patients and nurses and anesthesiologists, but people dealing with administrative function. That's likely the population that we're talking about here, as far as people who have the most portable, telework-friendly duties and responsibilities. All right. And that telework, then, what is the status there? Who can do it? When can they do it? And what's the policy? Some specifics we don't have just yet in terms of how many days, how often. We don't have that just yet. But what the VA is talking about, big picture, is moving to a hybrid workplace model. We heard that specifically from the Deputy VA Secretary Donald Remy at a recent press conference. He said that the VA is dramatically increasing telework opportunities and that this all fits into a broader human infrastructure plan that the VA released earlier this year. Generally speaking, the VA, he says, sees telework as a key tool to improve recruitment and retention for its workforce. The hybrid work environment will allow for people to use telework arrangements so that they only have to come into the office a set number of days during the week. We'll create a structure that assures that we're getting the work done as we have through the entire pandemic. A lot of people have been working remotely during that time period and we've learned that we can be successful in that environment. So the hybrid environment will be an environment where some people will be in the office, some people will be teleworking. And this whole thing occurs then, this whole semi-return to office or hybrid return, whatever they want to call it, just as the VA's own recommendations have come out for closing, restructuring, factoring facilities across the country, this giant plan that has yet to be vetted through the so-called Air Commission. I guess that's Asset Infrastructure Review Commission. What's the latest on those recommendations, and is there actually a commission yet? There's not actually a commission yet. There are nominees, but that is very early in the process. The Senate needs to confirm those commissioners, and even once the commission is established, that's about a year-long process for any of this to really get off the ground. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough was really trying to get ahead of the messaging as part of this press conference, says that it's going to be years at least until any of these recommendations actually materialize on the ground. He actually used the word decades to describe the timeline here. But he's really sensitive to this idea of this being a really major reshaping of the VA's medical facilities. And McDonough says that he briefed the workforce about the Air Commission recommendations before they went public. To describe this as not the agency in retreat here, but reinvesting in its workforce and its facilities. We wanted to make sure that our workforce understands that this is a plan to invest in the kind of facilities that they ought to be working in, in the kind of circumstances they ought to be working under, rather than working in really old facilities, some of them, you know, as much as uh, 100 years old.
And he did vet that, as you said, with the employees before the recommendations came out, and they fell like a lead balloon when it comes to their bargaining units, the uh, AFGE, different councils there. And so they don't believe them, and they've vowed to fight this thing tooth and nail, not the modernizing of existing buildings, but anything that would move a facility. So still very much a sell job he's got to do. Yeah, well, you can imagine your job, even if it's decades in the distant future, you might feel a little on shaky ground knowing that the facility that you currently work in might not be around forever. Although if you looked at some of the recommendations, I read one at random. It was had to do with an area in Northern California, the Bay Area. They were just going to move something a few miles and to where the veterans actually are and away from a falling down old anyway. That's all in the future, as he said, a decades-long plan. In the meantime, what else is VA doing to try to recruit and retain the people they've got now? Well, the VA, they thanked Congress for passing the RAISE Act as part of the fiscal 2022 omnibus spending bill. That provision sets higher pay caps for the VA's physician assistants as well as its registered nurses. VA said thanks, but there's actually more that they want to see from Congress in terms of pay for VA employees. McDonough shed a little bit more on that, saying that The agency needs to see higher pay for VA hospital CEOs, saying that they're not just paid below what they could make in the private sector, but in a lot of cases, they're actually capped at pay below what VA's highest paid clinicians earn. Meanwhile, McDonough says that physicians at the VA also need to see higher pay for them to stick around and have a long career at the agency. He also says that the agency needs to sit down with Congress and address things such as what he calls unnecessary wage and grade differentials across its facilities. And he used the example of therapists who are working in mental health at VA vet centers. A therapist there tops out at a GS-11. Somebody doing the same thing in a VA medical center is a GS-12. So naturally, there's a lot of progression from vet centers to med centers. The question we need to ask ourselves, is that right? Or is there some regularization across the VA system that we ought to be doing? Yeah, McDonald really sounds like a guy dealing with a beehive that's been kicked over of issues swirling around his head. Meanwhile, there's that rollout of the new electronic health record. That hasn't exactly been smooth. What's going on there now, Jory? Well, the biggest deal here is that the future rollouts planned for this electronic health record are going to go forward as planned. That means Walla Walla Washington will go live this Saturday. And at the end of April, we'll see the third go live in Columbus, Ohio. This is after the VA's inspector general released a series of reports last week that outlined some pretty serious problems with the first go live in Spokane, Washington. A lot of ink spilled in these reports here, but the the couple of things to remember here is that the IG substantiated concerns that the EHR was not flagging patients who were at high risk of suicide, or at least were indicated as such in the VA's records, and didn't give VA providers a complete picture of a patient's healthcare data that was in that system. Some really serious concerns there, but Remy, the deputy VA secretary, says that none of the IG's findings came as a surprise and that they were previously identified as part of the agency's own strategic review on this issue. We believe we're armed with the right tools to remediate the challenges as we transition from VISTA to the new EHR solution. All healthcare record transitions are complex. There's no doubt about it. They're prone to hiccups along the way. Ours is no exception. So that's Donald Remy, the deputy VA secretary, addressing 
just the latest in a series of high-profile issues over at VA. All right, more hiccups to come. Have a sugar cube. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.